before we get started with the teaching today, I've asked the band to play one more song to help us focus our minds on the topic for today. Thank you guys for that. Um, the scripture for today is 1 Corinthians, so go ahead and open your Bible. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today. And I'm sorry, before we start, I, I don't know if any of you noticed this. Was that song as awful as I thought it was? Yeah? So I feel like we need to give honest feedback to our band so why don't you guys sit tight for just a second. Let me take care of this. Guys, the song was terrible. <laughs> it was really bad. So we're going to try and sort this out. Liz, what song were you singing? This I Believe. This I Believe. Okay. I think I heard that. So Aaron, what about you? What song were you singing? Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. I think I see what's going on. Brandon, what song were you singing? Uh-huh. Paul, what song were you singing? Play. Okay, I think I'm starting to see what's going on here. So I think the issue is that when you guys were playing, I could tell that there was no sense of unity, and I think I understand why now. You were playing from completely different sheets of music. That's never going to work. So I happen to have a few identical copies of one single sheet of music, and I'm just going to pass that out to each one of you. We're just going to give this another try. But this time, please, let's all just play from one single sheet of music and see how it goes, okay? So here I am to better. Great. Well, thank you guys. We appreciate that. If you can go and have a seat now, let's give them a hand. We need to encourage such terrible playing. It's good. It's amazing what a little bit of unity can do, right? So, like Tom said, we're continuing in our series this summer on the book of 1 Corinthians. And he read the scripture for you, so I'm not going to read it again. And we're going to go through it piece by piece in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I wonder if this has ever happened to you before. You're in a conversation with somebody, and you mention that you're a Christian. And the person says, oh, really, what kind? And maybe you pause for a second, and you say, well, um, I'm the kind that follows Jesus and reads the Bible. And they say, well, yeah, I know that. But what I mean is, what kind of Christian are you? Like, you go to church, right? Yeah, yeah, I go to church. Okay, so what kind of church? Um, the kind that meets on Bogey Lake Road in White Lake. <laughs> and 
you know what they're getting at when they ask you this question, right? What kind of Christian are you? They're, they're trying to figure out your specific brand of Christianity. Or they might use the word denomination. And it's not, it, it's not a very strange question. Or it doesn't seem that way to us. We hear things like this all the time, but maybe we should think of it as strange. That concept has been around for centuries. This idea that Christians are broken up into unique factions that we sometimes call denominations. Baptists and Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals. And have you ever thought about how many denominations there really are? I dug into it a little bit, and it depends a lot on who you ask, but the lowest estimate that I could find says that there are over 200 unique Protestant Christian denominations in the U.S. and Canada alone. 200. That number is actually not that hard to believe because you could imagine going on a road trip through, I don't know, a few of the United States and probably come across that many. But let's think about that number for a minute. That's 200 or so groups of Protestant Christians that most likely all believe that Jesus is the only means of salvation. They most likely all believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. But somewhere along the line in history, each of those 200 or so groups of Christians decided that they're different than their other brothers and sisters in Christ. Different enough that they need to create their own unique identity with a logo and a name just so that they don't mistakenly or accidentally get mistaken for one of those other types of Christians out there. Now, when you consider the global church, how can we possibly succeed in the commission that we've been given to make disciples of all the nations if the body is made up of these independent task forces that are each marching to the beat of their own drum? It's going to sound an awful lot like a band where every member is playing a completely different song at the same time, right? Well, apparently this isn't a new problem because the, the further we deep into, dig into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we find that the unity in the Corinthian church was starting to fall apart. And that's what Paul is about to speak to in verse 10. So let's go there first. Verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers. So right off the bat, he's making this point that they're not just members of the same team. They're members of the same family. He calls them brothers. And then he name drops. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any of you do this at work? You name drop? This is what you do when you have a colleague and you need them to do something for you and they're kind of dragging their feet. And so you send them an email and you CC their boss and you slip in the name of the vice president that gave you the assignment. In my job, people just use the initials of the vice president, R-E-L. You slip those three letters into an email and people pay attention. Sometimes I think the upper management of the company, they just scan through their hundreds of unread emails looking for those three letters. And when they see one, they go, ooh, I better read that one. So you drop in the name of the guy in charge and you get results, right? That's what Paul's doing. He's name dropping. He has no shame in doing it. He's about to give instructions in the name of Jesus Christ. It's like his way of telling the Corinthians, this is the one you're going to want to read. So he gives three distinct instructions. The first one says that you all agree. So if you're looking at one of the black Bibles in the chairs... You're looking at the English Standard Version, and you'll see that word agree. The original word that Paul used, it really means something more like to speak the same thing. He uses a word for speak that specifically means to speak from a common discourse. He could have used 
two other words in the Greek language to talk about speaking, but those two words have to do with individual expression. And that's not what he was going for. He's talking about a common set of core beliefs that are the same among all Christian believers, like a confession or a creed. He's encouraging us to stick to the script, stick to the gospel, and leave out our opinions. So he's asking us to agree with one another. But we don't always do that, right? There's so many times in the church where two well-meaning Christians just disagree with one another. And sometimes it's got to happen that way because especially when the matter is important enough and especially if one member of the disagreement is just flat out wrong. So whenever there's a disagreement between two members of the church, we have to distinguish between things that are essential doctrine and things that are not. So things that are essential doctrine might be things like the deity of Christ or the idea of salvation through Christ alone or the eternal nature of God. Those are just a few, and there's several others, but those are some examples of common core beliefs of the Christian faith that you would find in our statement of faith here in this church, and you'd probably find the same in the statements of faith in, in many other churches, most Protestant Christian churches in, in the country and in the world. You might think of matters of essential doctrine like this. If two believers in the church fundamentally disagree on a matter of essential doctrine, they probably don't worship the same God. And for that reason, they should not be united to one another. Now, they might continue to be friends, and they might choose to just hang out together, and that's fine, but from a spiritual standpoint, they should not be united. They should not be yoked together because they're not even members of the same family. They don't worship the same God. One example of that might be an interfaith church where the, the members of that church fundamentally disagree with one another on matters of essential doctrine, but they still inappropriately choose to unite themselves into one body. We have to be careful about that in the, in the Christian church. So if those are matters of essential doctrine, what are some non-essential things about the Christian faith? Well, you might think of things like the color of the carpet in the sanctuary or the order of the worship service on Sunday morning. If you came in one morning, we decided to do the preaching first and the songs at the end. Some people might get a little riled up, right? Or you might think about the clothes people are wearing to church. These are all matters of the faith that are not essential doctrine. So when two believers in the church disagree on a matter that's not essential, Paul's instruction to us is to agree with one another, to say the same thing. Look back to that common discourse that unites us instead of squabbling over the color of the carpet and choose to worship together despite our differences about how we feel about who's wearing what to church, despite our different opinions about how many kids Adam and Eve had or whatever obscure thing about the Bible. Paul's instructing us to agree with one another. And then he gives the next two instructions, and they're very similar to one another, so we'll think of them kind of at the same time. Let there be no divisions among you, and you should be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In carpentry, there's a procedure for coupling two boards together into a butt joint to make one continuous flat surface. It's what you would do to make a tabletop, and that's what you see in the image here. You can see this guy has a bunch of clamps all around to try and keep everything flat and tight. In the scripture, when Paul uses the word division, that original word means a crack or a split in what would otherwise be one continuous surface. That's what you would get if you were a sloppy carpenter. 
making a sloppy butt joint. Like if you started with boards that were just bowed to begin with, or if you didn't use enough glue in the joint, or if you didn't use enough clamping force while the joint was curing. Now on the other hand, when the scripture talks about being united, that means to be perfectly joined together. So that's what you would get if you were a, a seasoned carpenter making a precise butt joint. When it's all finished and it's all sanded down, you ought to be able to close your eyes and run your hand over the top, and you won't be able to tell where one board ends and the other one begins. Because it's all like one continuous surface, and that's a picture of what God wants the church to look like. So we understand this instruction from Paul that we ought to be unified as a church. But what lingers out there is still the question of why. Why is it such a big deal? Especially when it's so easy and so comfortable for members of the church to just kind of keep to themselves or do their own thing. What's the incentive to unify? So I wanted to share an illustration with you. And since it's Father's Day, I thought at some point we should talk about something manly. So I thought we could talk about muscle cars for a minute. If you're an automaker and you set out to design a car like this, it's going to take hundreds and hundreds of engineers and designers to pull it off. And that poses a real challenge for any automaker because you've got to find a way to take all of these independent hundreds of design chunks and piece them together into one unified car for one purpose. It's very tricky. So you can think about the guy who designs the air conditioning system for this car. As far as he's concerned, his job is to produce the perfect air conditioning system, the one that kicks out the coldest air on the hottest day and keeps the driver so comfortable. So he's going to try and design a super powerful air conditioning system. And you know where he's going to get the power to do that? He's going to steal it from the engine. Now, men, as you look at the car, I hope that feels wrong to you. Because if you own this car and you're out at the track on Saturday at the starting line and your knuckles are white and your tires are smoking and your adrenaline's pumping and your buddy's next to you in his Mustang with a goofy grin on his face, how do you think you feel about the air coming out of your vents? You don't care much, do you? It's because this car exists for one purpose. You want to guess what that is? Go fast. It exists for speed. That's it. I was a part of the team that designed the engine for this car, so I can tell you it exists for the sole purpose of going fast. Now, the perfect air conditioning system for this car is the one that turns itself off the moment you mash down on the gas pedal because now it's not stealing power from the engine. And so it lets the car accelerate just a little bit more and reach just a couple miles per hour top, uh, more top speed. But you tell that to the air conditioning guy, you know what he's going to say? He'll say, come on, I designed the perfect air conditioning system. And now you're telling me I need to compromise my AC system and make it less than optimal just so the car can go a couple miles per hour faster? The answer is yes, absolutely. Yes, 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 because the car is meant to go fast, not meant to have a comfortable cabin temperature while racing. You can think about the person designing the transmission. She might decide that the best possible transmission is the one that's the most elegant, the simplest, with the least moving parts, the lightest weight, the lowest cost. And so she designs a transmission that has two gears for this car. Now, men, when you're out at the track, how are you going to feel about your racing experience if your muscle car never gets out of second gear? Not so good, right? 
and you go back and complain to the transmission engineer, and she'll say, well, look, I designed a beautifully elegant transmission, low cost, best fuel economy. But I ask you, is the purpose of this car to have good fuel economy? Look at it. No. Is the purpose of this car to have low cost? Nope. What is the purpose of this car? To go fast, yes. The only way to make this work is for every design engineer on this entire vehicle program to be thinking with every decision that they make, speed, power, acceleration, how can I make the car go faster together with my other colleagues? It's so similar with the church. The Christian church is not a social club. It's a movement. It's a complex machine. It's like a muscle car that was born for one purpose, to make disciples. That's what Jesus told us to do. Every activity that the church does and participates in is focused toward that one unified purpose, to make disciples. So when you consider the global church, and you think about this corner over here of the global church, and they, their primary focus is on wearing their hair a certain way, and over here, this corner of the global church, their primary purpose is reading only the King James Version of the Bible. And over here, this corner of the global church can't possibly think about worshiping without smoke and lights and a heavy kick drum beat. And you pull them all together to take a look at the global church, and you know what you get? A failure. Because it doesn't make disciples. Nobody's thinking about that one common objective. It's like all the different design engineers putting together their beautifully optimized piece of the car but it's a terrible muscle car because it doesn't go fast like it's supposed to. To do this right in the church, every member of every church worldwide has to be thinking in every area of ministry, how can I make more disciples along with my brothers and sisters in Christ? That's how you build a unified church. So for the Apostle Paul... Unity in the church was such a priority, he considered it to be an absolute requirement if the gospel had any hope of spreading throughout the world like it was supposed to. So I want to show you just how important it was for Paul to have unity in the church. And I want to show that by taking a quick glimpse into the early years of the church. So let's do that right now. The church started one day in Jerusalem when the Apostle Peter stood up in front of a huge group of people and he preached the very first gospel presentation. And the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that on that day, over 3,000 people accepted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. So a megachurch was born overnight. And the people started to gather together in homes to worship and pray together. And so you had these little pods of Christians all around the Jerusalem area. And about that time, the oppression from the Jews against the Christians intensified. So the megachurch scattered. They fled all throughout the continent. And what looked like a very bad thing actually turned out to be a very good thing because now you have all these little pods of Christians around the known world starting churches of their own. Now, it would have been so easy for each of those churches to just kind of go off in their own direction, but they didn't do that. They all recognized they were a part of one church under one name, Jesus. So you can think of that as like the first big test of unity in the church. But then the plot thickened. Because up in Damascus, there was a man named Saul. Saul was the most violent oppressor of Christians. 
And one day, he got a personal visit from the resurrected Christ, and it changed his life forever. In the matter of a couple of days, Saul went from being the, the world's foremost Christ hater, a Christian killer, to being the world's foremost gospel preacher. And his name was changed to Paul. He's the man who's writing the letter to the Corinthians that we're studying throughout the summer. Now, right after his conversion, he stayed in Damascus just long enough for word to get down to the mother church in Jerusalem that Saul, the Christ-hater, has now converted, and he's calling himself Paul, an apostle of Jesus, just like Peter and James and John and the others in Jerusalem. Now, before the guys in Jerusalem could do anything about it, Paul disappeared into Arabia for three years. He just went off the grid. Now, if you're the guys in Jerusalem, how do you think you feel about that? I mean, what kind of damage is this guy going to do? Even if his conversion was legitimate, Paul is a newbie. and He's got a loud mouth. I mean, just think of all the mess he could make down in Arabia if he goes rogue with his own version of the gospel that doesn't align with the gospel that's being preached in Jerusalem. What is going to happen to the unity in the church? Well, listen to what happened. After about three years... Paul decided that it was time to go back to Jerusalem and meet with the leaders of the church for the first time. And so he showed up at the house of Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. Talk about awkward. Oh, these two guys, the last time they saw each other, Paul was killing Christians, literally friends of Peter. And now he shows up on Peter's doorstep, a suspected rogue Christian spreading who knows what down in Arabia for the last three years. Do you think that was an easy visit for Paul to make? He knew how Peter saw him. How much easier would it have been for Paul to just kind of walk around Jerusalem and go start his own church somewhere else? What about Peter? you think that was easy for Peter to open the door of his house and let this guy in for two weeks? This was such an uncomfortable interaction that makes you wonder why these guys even did it. Unity. Unity is why they did it. They realized that as the foremost leaders of the Christian movement, these two men had to align their ministries. Otherwise, the unity in the church would be lost. And so they did it. It makes me wonder what they talked about in the morning when they met for breakfast every day over the course of two weeks. These guys were so different from one another. Paul was a white-collar, highly educated Jew. He knew all there was to know about the law, but he had zero experience actually interacting with Jesus. Peter was the complete opposite. He was a blue-collar tradesman, a, a, a fisherman, who had not a day of education in his life. He had zero experience and knowledge about the law, but he had three years packed full of interactions with Jesus as his wingman. Oh, you can imagine the conversations these guys must have had, right? You can picture Paul just taking days expounding on how Christ is the fulfillment of the law and Peter's brain just exploding from all this new revelation, stuff he's never heard before. You can imagine Peter just talking late into the night, giving the detailed play-by-play -play about every miracle Jesus ever performed, and Paul just sitting on the edge of his seat, just soaking it all up. And the truth is, we don't know what those two men talked about over the course of those two weeks. But we do know from the book of Galatians that when they emerged from that first meeting together, they were united. Now, Paul went on from there to start a new church 
in Antioch. And that church thrived. And in the following decades, Paul made several repeat trips back to Jerusalem to align with the apostles, with the leaders of the church there. But it would have been so much easier for him not to. Almost every time he went back to be with those guys, there was friction. Like Paul was, he just kind of rubbed those guys the wrong way a lot of the time. He seemed to always bring trouble with him. It would have been so much easier for him to just stay in Antioch and just kind of move in different directions. I mean, every time they got together, there were arguments, there were tense moments. But whenever they disagreed on something, this is so important. Whenever they disagreed on something, they refused to split ways and form two different denominations. They would not do it. Instead, they slogged it out, and they focused on the essentials of the faith, and they were willing to compromise everywhere else. And it was uncomfortable. It was awkward. It was not probably not even fun sometimes. But it was so worth it because in the end of it all, they emerged as one united church. You think we could do that in this century as the church? Let's look back to 1 Corinthians and move to verse 12. Here's what Paul says. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. It's another name for Peter. Or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is a report that came back from one of the home churches in Corinth, evidently the one that was known as Chloe's people. So Paul is listing off the names of some of the most prominent Christian leaders of that day. He lists himself Paul, he talks about Apollos, and he talks about Peter. These were biblical teachers that were raised up to hero status in Corinth. They were like superstars to them. In later decades, you could imagine other names being added to the list. Maybe uh, the names of the men who decided to write their own personal accounts of Jesus, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. We could just keep adding names of Christian leaders. And each of these, pre- each of these teachers had their own unique experiences with Jesus, and so that gave them each their own unique angle on the gospel message. And God probably intended for those differing perspectives to give a more complete, more thorough understanding of the gospel story to the people. But for the Corinthians, they were just confused. They assumed that each of these men were actually independent sources of godly truth. Like, each, each of them was producing the word of God on their own. So that meant that any disagreements among them, that put one person right and all the others wrong, So the people felt like they needed to align themselves with just one of these people and discount all the rest. So you have them saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And it's really no different in the modern-day church. We see this happening, too. You could swap out these names with some other famous Christian leaders, John MacArthur, Rob Bell. You can think about John Bevere, Joyce Meyer, or uh, Billy Graham. And can you see how when, when the people in the church look at their leadership in this way, it brews disunity among the body. See, what the people didn't understand and what Paul is now trying to explain to them is that each of these men were not individual sources of godly truth. They were just vessels delivering the word of God to the people. They were conduits, like like hoses, flowing the word of God from the source to the people. And the source of that flow was God. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is God 
living inside of us, teaching us about him. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples about this. It's in John chapter 14, verse 25. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In Corinth, the people weren't receiving different truth from each of these different teachers. Listen to what Paul says. He, he says, is Christ divided? No, Christ is not divided. There's one source. It's just that the truth from that one source was flowing to the people through a bunch of different hoses, which is totally appropriate because remember, the different perspectives from these different teachers appeal to the people in different ways so that the complete story of the gospel is just that. It's more complete. It's more thorough. What's important is that one common Holy Spirit is feeding all of the teachers. And naturally, one common source lends itself to one united church. That's what Paul was driving for. And this brings a pretty important question for you and I. In our Christian growth, who do we follow? When you come to church on Sunday morning, are you coming to hear Tom Llewellyn or Paul Cronenwet or Brandon Belanti? Or are you coming to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit? If you went to a huge Christian conference on the weekend to hear your favorite speaker, somebody who's polished and entertaining, but when you got there, you realized that that speaker was sick and the fill-in guy was not polished and not entertaining, would you be disappointed? Who did you go to the conference to hear in the first place? The hose or the source? Now, of course, the hoses that feed the Word of God to the church are more than just preachers and teachers. In fact, if you think about all the different ways the Holy Spirit delivers His truth into your life, pastors and preachers are really just one. Uh, you could think of other hoses. The most important is the Bible itself, because the Bible contains the very words of God, the words that He inspired godly men to write down for us. But there are other hoses, too. God-focused music. You could even think of direct revelation from God from your own personal quiet time and meditation. Now, these are all different ways that God can deliver the word, his word, into your life. And it's like a system of checks and balances. Because if you were to take just one of these hoses and focus on it and ignore all the others, you probably won't get a full, complete picture of what God wants to share with you, what he wants to teach you. There's only one of these hoses that's without error, and that's the Bible. But even there, our interpretation of what the Bible says and what it means is not without error. So what we ought to be doing is taking the stuff we're getting from the preacher and compare it against the things we're reading in the Bible for ourselves. And we should take the messages that we're hearing in the Christian music on the radio station, or even the hymns we sing on Sunday morning, and compare it with the things God's revealing to us in our own personal prayer time. We take the spiritual food that's coming from all of these hoses and we compare it together. And if one hose is piping in stuff that doesn't match all the rest, it's probably not being fed from the right source. If you find that you have a hose plugged in on your end, but it's not being sourced from the Holy Spirit, it's got to go. You've got to cut that off. Go find a hose that's sourced from the Spirit and plug into that one. But then one day you meet somebody from across town, and he claims to be a Christian, but man, his Christianity looks totally different than yours. I mean, he's like a different brand. All of his hoses look different. 
he's, he's listening to a different preacher, and he reads a version of the Bible that just sounds really strange and complicated to you. And his worship style is completely different, different songs, different uh, instruments, does different things in worship, and he even talks about praying and hearing from God in ways that just kind of give you the creeps and you just don't really understand. You're just so different, and so naturally your tendency is going to be to avoid that guy in the future because he just makes you feel awkward whenever you get together and talk about the things of God. But we cannot take that approach in the Christian church. We cannot afford that. Can you imagine if Paul and Peter took that approach? Instead, they spent those uncomfortable two weeks together just to find out if they were being sourced from the same Holy Spirit. And when they found out that they were, they deliberately united themselves for the good of the gospel, for the good of the great commission that they'd been given. We have to do the same thing in the church today. We've got to determine who our brothers and sisters are in Christ and try to find out if we're being sourced from the same Holy Spirit. And if we are being sourced by the same Spirit, then we need to deliberately unite ourselves for the good of the gospel, for the sake of the Great Commission. The global church is so much bigger than the few of us in this room. Sometimes we think of this as the church. The church is so much bigger than us. And the commission that we've been given as the church is so much bigger than any one of us individually. Our only hope of fulfilling the Great Commission, of of making disciples of all nations, is if we're one united church. Why don't we close by reading the scripture one more time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, speak the same thing. Go back to that common discourse that unites us. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would continue to teach us about unity in the church, what you have to say about it, even after we leave this place. I pray that you would help us to identify the followers of Christ around us so that we can unite ourselves to them. Help us to feel that sense of urgency to unite and not just be complacent to sit back and keep to ourselves and worship in our own way and not communicate with the other members of the global church. Please drive in us a sense of urgency to unite because it's clear that Paul had it and Peter had it. It's clear that you have it, God, that you want us to be united and I pray that you would make us also want to be united as a church. We ask for these things in the authority of your name. Amen. Thank you.